The following audio is from Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to make and mature disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. Amen. All right. Well, like I said, it is uh, so good to be here with everybody this morning. We can't wait to be inside again. But, you know, this has been kind of fun, hasn't it? Uh, (laughs) We've had some good weather, uh, except for that one week that we didn't know what was going to happen. Other than that, we've been blessed, and uh, I'm so grateful for that. So we're back in the book of Acts. We're just going to kind of keep traveling through there uh, and and, kind of the narrative of what was going on in the first church. Just a little quick recap. Uh, if you haven't been here in the last few weeks, uh, Jesus came and he told his disciples, you're going to go, you're going to be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And they said, wait, aren't you establishing your kingdom? And he says, no, not yet. And he ascends into heaven. And then the Holy Spirit comes like tongues of fire, it says, and they start preaching the word of God with boldness. 3,000 people get saved. And, uh, and Peter and John are going, and they heal the lame man at the gate called Beautiful and, and just making waves for the Lord. And, and then we learn that they're kind of in and out of prison, right? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about that their boldness brought about opposition. <clears throat> but then, and then the next week, Daniel talked about Ananias and Sapphira who had, uh, who had lied to the Holy Spirit, right? God was seeking holiness in his church and knew and understood that at the very moment that there was this corrupt kind of idea coming into the church so early, he was going to get rid of it, and he struck them dead right then and there. And so, uh, and the apostles were preaching the gospel everywhere they went, and later in chapter 5 it says that they were healing people, and they were doing all these signs and miracles and wonders, and they were authenticating the truth of what God was saying, that he was real, that Jesus was the answer, and they could see it in the miracles that were happening. And so, um, and so then that, that began to ruffle a, little fe- a few feathers again, right? As they're preaching the gospel and people are getting healed and people are getting saved, uh, it, the enemy does not like it when, when the people of God do what they're commanded to do and lives change. Amen? The enemy doesn't like that. When you do what you're supposed to do, when I do what I'm supposed to do, and lives of people change, the enemy then sees us as a threat and then bears down on us. That, that's just the way it has to work. And I want to tell you this morning about two Sudanese men uh, named Patrick and Ishmael. And I'm sure their names have been changed for the sake of the story, but if you listen to me, uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you a story of these two men who live in South Sudan, all right? Patrick is a man who preaches and pastors a church in South Sudan, and Ishmael is a follower of Jesus who's been persecuted and jailed several times for preaching the gospel. After several beatings and several threats from those who tried to silence Ishmael, they were left in awe in his demeanor. How could this man, bloodied from repeated blows, be so joyful How could this man who lost every earthly possession and had no lawyer or friends visiting appear content with his current situation, asked the jailers. Ishmael's response was 
bolstered by a, re, by a realization. Ishmael's relationship with God changed from practice to reality. And he was grateful for the times Christ would join him in his ministry as his captors attempted to force him back into his Muslim roots. I have tasted Christ, and Christ is more sweeter and best than anything I could ever think. There's no choice. It's never a choice for me to deny Christ, said Ishmael. Even when I'm in prison, the walls of the prison is not a barrier between me and God. The jailers did the only thing they knew they could think of. They beat him more, tortured him more, and Ishmael learned and leaned on God to love even more. Many times when I, was, uh, when I look back, I say, thank you, God, for allowing persecution to come through my life, said Ishmael. Persecution is promised, but it is not without promise. Even in South Sudan, uh, we're talking about Jesus can land you in jail. But what, but what do we do in jail? We share the gospel with those who are in jail, said Bishop Patrick, a Sudanese man who was raised in a Christian home. In a few minutes, we teach them how to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. Evangelism doesn't go over well with the jailers. In Ishmael's case, he was thrown into solitary because every prisoner he shared the cell with came to know Jesus. In Patrick's case, the holy ruckus of prisoners worshiping inspired the, gods to, uh, the guards to release him with a slap on the wrist. Don't talk about Jesus again, they warned. But Patrick cannot be quiet. His heart is too full. His life is too changed by the love of Christ. Whether they kill us or they don't kill us, there's only one thing God calls us for, Patrick said. It's to bring this message of hope to the entire nation of South Sudan. That's in season or out of season, Patrick added, referring to 2 Timothy 4.2. Patrick said he has told the Lord before, God, you have called us and you have given us the gospel. We'll preach this gospel. If we die, we die. But we know one thing. Sudanese must receive Christ. They must know the gospel no matter how much it's going to cost us, no matter how painful it is. But there is one thing. The gospel must be preached in season and out of season. What an amazing story of these two men from South Sudan. And this happened in the late 90s. There's a lot of lessons, I think, that we can learn from people who are persecuted for preaching the message of the gospel and continue to do it anyways. Amen? There's a lot of lessons we can learn from that. Just as we see the apostles uh, and everything they went through in the book of Acts, there's much we can learn about doing what God would have us to do no matter what anyone says. We must do what God has called us to do no matter what anyone says. I titled this message, Obey God and Not Man. And we're going to see Peter say that in a little while, but there's a lot of weight that comes with that statement, okay? Obey God and not man, because God is the only one that matters, okay? And that brings us right into our text this morning. We can see in chapter 5, uh, right after Ananias and Sapphira were struck down dead, that the apostles were moving, people were getting saved, uh, they were preaching in the center of the city, they were preaching at the temple, 
and, uh, and people were getting healed, so much so that people would bring lame people out to the streets and lay them on their coats just so that Peter's shadow could pass by them and they would be healed. It was a major thing going on, and it ruffled several feathers, like I said. We're going to be at Acts 5, 17 through 21 this morning. Acts 5, 17 through 21. I'll try to go a little slow with my references because I know some people take notes and I tend to get a little quick on it. So Acts 5, 17 through 21 says, Then the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and tell the people about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. We see the apostles right here making waves for the sake of Christ, right? People are being saved. People that are being saved are doing the exact thing that the apostles are doing, right? When, when they go and they make their own disciples, those disciples would go and make other disciples because you don't get 5, 8, 10, 20,000 people being saved by 12 men doing all the work right? So anytime these apostles would come and they would preach and they would make disciples, those disciples would then go and make other disciples. And, they were, and it was catching fire and they, what Jesus had commanded them to do when he ascended. And as we learned a couple of weeks ago, opposition comes when we speak boldly about the name of Jesus. It's, it's a certainty. Opposition will come when we speak boldly uh, for the sake of Christ. That being said, uh, I think what happens in this part of Acts is very interesting. Look at verse 17 again. It says, Then the high priest rose up, and all who were with him and belong, that belonged to the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Now, we've discussed before who these Sadducees are, and so I don't think we need to get into that again this morning. They were uh, a group of religious leaders who led the people in that time. There was another group called the Pharisees, and they uh, combined had this council called the Sanhedrin. Um, and so, uh, so here were these religious leaders. And as the apostles were doing what Jesus had called them to do, the religious leaders of that day began to burn with jealousy is what the Bible says. But what did they have to be jealous about? We can ask that. Like, why? Why exactly were they being jealous of these men? Well, first off, they were looked to for everything concerning the matters of God. In other words, if, if, if in that day I was a religious leader, whether uh, a Sadducee or a Pharisee and, the, and a member of the Council of the Sanhedrin, then whoever had a question about the things of God, they would come to me if I was a Sadducee. And they would say, hey, you know, Rabbi, what, what, is the, what does God say about this? Or, hey, Rabbi, I have this question about God about this. their hand and they were able to tell people what God's law said specifically as it concerned to uh, as it concerned their lives anytime anybody had a question about God uh, they would go to the temple and inquire these religious leaders that came with tons of respect and prestige okay it, it, it they began to get kind of filled with this pride that nobody else could answer these questions nobody else could do what they did uh, in the prestige that they did. 
Well, as you can expect, there's thousands and thousands of people who are converting to Jesus through the gospel. Okay? They're no longer coming to these Sadducees asking these questions, but they're converting to Jesus Christ through the gospel whom he's claiming to be the coming Messiah or the come Messiah, and they deny that. And so, of course, they're going to be jealous. They're going to be upset, right? Uh, And they, the apostles, were claiming to have direct access to God. They were claiming to have direct access to God. To understand why that holds so much weight. And why that would be, sound so radical to them that somebody would have direct access to God. So according to the law, and this was accurate up until Jesus, the only access anyone had to God was through a yearly sacrifice made by the high priest. In other words, uh, the people would sin all year long, and then the high priest would come once a year, and he would offer this sacrifice on behalf of the people, and that was his job. And these priests would train their entire lives to be able to facilitate the yearly sacrifices. It was a major honor, duty of offering these sacrifices. It was a really big deal. However, the apostles were preaching that you no longer needed to offer these yearly sacrifices because of Jesus, right? Jesus took care of that once and for all. And so if you can imagine... There, there was this impasse where uh, the apostles were saying, no, Jesus took care of the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. We no longer need you, high priest, to sacrifice for us. Well, of course they would become jealous, don't you think? To say, hey, you no longer have a job. Don't worry about it. Just follow this guy born in Bethlehem who come from Nazareth. They, they, they didn't like that very much. Look at what Hebrews 10, chapter 10, verse 10 through 14 says. Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices uh, time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, talking about Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies us to us about this. So the writer of Hebrews says, listen, We know about the yearly sacrifice. We know what the priests did day after day, time after time, year after year. They had to come with this incomplete sacrifice that Jesus came once and for all and wiped it all away. Even the yearly sacrifice could not take away your sin. It could only cover it. Only the blood of Jesus, only the perfect sacrifice of Jesus was qualified to take sin completely away. Now, trust me, I don't understand how God does that. How does God take away your sin and remember it no more if God is all-knowing and omniscient? It's a difficult thing. It's a difficult complex to understand, but he does it. He says he remembers your sin no more. I love what verse 14 says in Hebrews. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. So Jesus was the 
was the only sacrifice needed for all time, meaning there would be no more yearly sacrifices for these priests to do. And it would only be about five to seven years after this account, after this letter was written, that Titus would come in and he would destroy the temple in Jerusalem and there wouldn't be any more yearly sacrifices. So here were these men, these apostles, who by all standards of those who sat on the council were just dumb Galileans. Do you remember earlier in Acts when they're preaching and, and they're speaking in different languages? And they said, who are these guys? They're just from Galilee. They're fishermen from Galilee. Here they are claiming to know more about God than the Sadducees do. Claiming that the centuries worth of laws that they follow were incomplete. They were jealous not only because of the message, but because of the success of the message. Thousands upon thousands of people are getting saved. Let me tell you something. The message of the gospel will always be successful. Always. Let me repeat that. The message of the gospel will always be successful. If Jesus said, you go and you make disciples, well, there are going to be disciples made. Okay? That's the way it works. We cannot say, we cannot say, oh, oh, yeah, we were called to do this, but I don't see it being successful. I, I, we, we're going to plant this church, but who knows how successful it'll be. Listen, if we follow the word of God and we do what God's word says, the message of the gospel will always be successful. Always. We have people here every year because of the message of the gospel. It is, it is accurate to say that it will be successful. Jesus commanded it. And if you're opposed to this message then jealousy and envy will most certainly be the outcome of its success. Nobody wants to admit that their belief system is flawed. Wouldn't you agree with that? Atheists have a real problem with morality. I studied apologetics in college, and, uh, and that's one of the things that they cannot explain. To say that we have a moral compass that is objective, they, they can't deal with that, because they want, to be, they want morality to be subjective. What I feel is right in my own eyes is right for me. But when that infringes on somebody else's moral rights, then you have a problem. So objectively, we have this one standard of morality, and they don't know what to do with it. They have no clue. And so they get upset and even angry because Christians say, I know the answer to that question. God has set a moral standard. God has set a moral law within our hearts that we are to follow, and he's the moral law giver, and it makes perfect sense. And so then they burn with envy and jealousy that we can, with authority, say, we know what this is all about. Of course they're going to be jealous if their faith system is wrong. And that's what we find here in our text. They're filled with jealousy. They're burning with it. So much so that they're willing to imprison the apostles for it. Okay? Let's back up a little bit. Because although we see through the trials of Jesus and through all this stuff, this wasn't like a normal occurrence for the Sanhedrin to just be sending people to jail. It did happen. But it wasn't like this normal occurrence. They were just so annoyed by the apostles and by the message that they were willing to go that far. Look at what 18 says again. They, they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. Notice this time, it's not only 
Peter and James or Peter and John. It's all of the apostles. I don't know how many we're counting here, whether it's the 12, whether it's the 122 that were in the upper room, but there's a lot of them. And they're out preaching and they're out doing the word of God. And, uh, and, and, these, and these Sadducees says, we can't have this. Shut them up. Tell them to stop. Tell, silence them. And we're going to put them in jail, all of them. He says, we're going to put them in jail. And they all experienced the persecution for preaching the word of God. Look at what 2 Timothy 3.12 says. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, in fact, all, let's stop right there. Who are all? Can we encompass everybody in all? All, everyone, each and every person. There's nobody left out, okay? Listen, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Think on that for just a second. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's saying, if you want to live a godly life, expect to be persecuted. And that's what was happening here. This is a certain reality that I firmly believe that we should all be prepared for. It's a certain reality that I believe we should all be prepared for one day. That when we are bold, the opposition will come, and uh, just as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, they will not like it. One question we have to ask ourselves is, what does God expect of us through persecution? We can go through persecution, we can have persecution or not, but what does God expect from us once this persecution comes? Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> you see, I feel like we've become a bit ignorant to the truth of God, for the truth that God has laid out for us, fluted. Please understand that when I say we, I really mean we. I mean all of us. I mean me included. I wrote this down. I thought it was pretty good, but I wrote it down. I put, we've made following Jesus nice and safe, and we want evangelism to be done in a free religious state that has no consequence at all. I'm going to repeat it again. We've made following Jesus nice and safe, and we want evangelism to be done in a free religious state that has no consequence at all. But what, is, what does God expect? Does God expect evangelism to be done in a safe and secure way? Let's look at Hebrews again. Hebrews chapter 12, 7 through 13. Hebrews 12, 7 through 13 says, Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit, he being God so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated instead. The writer of Hebrews says, that we should endure suffering 
as if it was discipline from God. What does that mean? That when we suffer for the sake of Christ, that we are then to interpret that as God saying, I am disciplining you as my child so that you can then do what I have asked you to do. Now, we, as parents, we all know that when we discipline our children, it's not because we hate them. It's not because we don't like them. It's because we hope that they learn from their mistakes and they get better the next time. Isn't that right? I remember, and my kids will testify to this, uh, because every time I bring this up, they're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Whenever uh, my children were small, I never spanked them without explaining to them first why they were getting the spanking. And so, uh, and I disciplined my kids whenever I had to. And so whenever they were bad or uh, they needed a spanking, I would say, go to your room, sit on your bed, and I'll be in there in a second. And I would take my time. I would kind of calm down, right? And then uh, I would go in there and I'd sit on their bed. And as a loving father, I'd say, now here's what you did, okay? You lied to me or you you did this or you did that. And now I'm going to have to spank you. And usually, probably nine times out of ten, the, the length in time and the like calm demeanor of my voice, they usually thought like, oh, nothing's going to happen. I'm good, you know? <laughs> He's going to forget. He loves me. He's not going to spank me. Uh, but then I would spank them. And so uh, I would help them to understand that I wanted them to learn on their suffering that it was going to benefit them later on down the line. That if they were going to grow in instruction and truth, it was going to have to come with pain every once in a while. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. That when you endure suffering, because it's going to come, that's what Paul said to Timothy. If you want to follow Jesus, expect, expect it. And when it comes, don't look at it as woe is me. Don't look at it as God doesn't love me because of what I'm going through. Look at it as God saying, yes, I see you going through that, and I'm going to allow you to go through that. So when you come out through the other end, I am glorified. Because you see, church, it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about him, and it's all about his glory and what happens down the line. Okay, I may suffer and die at the hands of the government today, but then tomorrow 10 people may be saved and God gets all the glory. Okay, I may suffer and die for the sake of the gospel and 10,000 people may be saved because of it. And that's the bigger picture that we should be looking at here. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Take your suffering as a discipline of God saying, yeah, take it, strengthen your weakened knees and know that I'm going to get glory out of this and, and count it joy that I've chosen you to go through it. Isn't that what they said? That they counted it joy, those two Sudanese men. They said, thank you, God, for allowing persecution to come through me so that you could be glorified. How amazing is that? I don't want to be a couch potato Christian. I don't want to be a Christian that nothing ever happens. I would rather suffer, they say. I would rather suffer for the sake of the gospel and the gospel move forward than me sit down and nothing happened because of it. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying, we should take this this, uh, suffering as discipline. If God chooses to discipline us to the point of growth for him, then we should rejoice in that discipline knowing that it is ultimately for our good. I love this part of the passage when he says, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. 
We benefit, God benefits through suffering. When we suffer for the sake of the gospel, God is glorified. And when we endure, the whole world sees how real and how true the message of God is. When we suffer. So let's see what happened to the apostles next. Back in chapter 5, verse 18 through 21. So they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. We saw that. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail, brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. What an amazing turn of events for this to happen. For these faithful men who are preaching Jesus. What an amazing turn of events. They're hauled into prison. They don't know what's going to become of their lives. Some of them probably very fearful that they don't know what's coming in the morning. Okay, listen, the, the jail back in that day is not like the cushy jail we have today. My youth, I'm, a, I'm ashamed to admit it, I've been to jail. I've been to the county jail, and you can sleep all day, and they give you three meals. And I'm not taking lightly that people are imprisoned. All I'm saying is, in those days, in Jerusalem, the jail was not sanitized, the jail was not clean, and you did not know when you were going into jail if you were going to survive the next day. Just so we can understand the weight of what this is. They're hauled off into jail for preaching God's word. They're probably fearful, some of them, and suffering never comes without human fear. Amen? Jesus, as he approached his death, pleaded with Jesus to allow the cup to pass from him. Think on that. Human suffering never comes without fear. These men were real people who had real feelings. I would be afraid if I were them too. But let's see what God does. What does God do? God sends them an angel. He frees them from their chains and he says, go, hide, hide and get away from persecution. No, he doesn't say that. That's not at all what God expects them to do. What does he say? 19, but an angel of the Lord brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and tell the people about this life. The temple, why would God send them right back into the temple? Why would God send them to the one place they got in trouble for being in? He, the angel comes and says, he doesn't say run and hide. He doesn't say, okay, I freed you. Your, your job has been done. Thank you for suffering. No, no, no. He says, I want you to go right back over there, right to the center of the temple, and I want you to preach about what God has done in this life. Right where the enemy's going to be. The angel knew that all of these Sadducees the next morning would know that they had been at the temple. There's no hiding it. They're, they're not under fear they're not preaching behind closed doors that god sends them right back into it right back into the place where they had gotten in trouble and god knows that god knows that but god is not concerned about what men can do to you but what he can do through those who obey his word that's what god is concerned about look at hebrew uh, sorry romans chapter 8 Verse 31, what then shall we say in God is for us, who can be against us? What an amazing statement. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? This should be our motto as we go about our Christian race. This should be our motto. If God is for us, who should be against us? When circumstances come our way and persecution comes, we should be able to repeat, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And one day when we're fearful of persecution and we're being hauled off to jail for preaching the word of God, if God is for us, who can be against us should be our reply. How amazing is that? Church, there's more to fear. There's more. I'm sorry. There is more to life that is like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. This life is so short. This life is so short. God expects for those who surrender to him to take the message to all creatures, no matter the consequence. No matter the consequence. God will send you into danger to receive glory into himself, and that's what we've signed up for. That's what God, he will send you into danger so that he can get glorified, and we should be willing and ready to go ahead and do it. Because we've signed up for that. When you say, God, I want to surrender my life to Jesus, and I want him to take the penalty that I, sh- I deserve, then what is he saying? He's saying, here you go, soldier, now go to the front lines. That's exactly what he's saying, because that's what we signed up for. There's a level of faith that it takes to trust every move that God makes through us. Faith that says, no matter what happens, God receives the glory. Faith that says, no matter how dangerous, God can overcome. No matter how frightening, my strength is in the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who holds me in the palm of his hands. That's the faith that God wants us to have, that we don't rely on ourselves when man comes and says, do not do this, but we rely on God and what he has commanded us to do because he holds us in his hands. God is the one we should be concerned about, not man. God sends them right back in to preach the gospel, even though they had been instructed not to. I think that's a very important thing that we need to pick up on this morning. They had not to preach the message of this gospel anymore, God breaks them out of jail and says, go preach the gospel right where they told you not to go. Even though the authorities said it was illegal, even though they knew how dangerous it would be, God sent them, sent them right back into the line of fire. A little further down in chapter 5 is one of my most favorite accounts in the whole Bible. Turn there. Uh, it's, it's Acts chapter 5 still, Verse 27 through 29, right? They, uh, they're out preaching. The Sadducees come back to convene to see what are we going to do with these guys. They send them to go get them. Hey, go get all those guys who we put in jail. They come back and said, they're not there. All the jailers were there and everything was secure and fastened like we left it, but they're not there. And they said, haul them in. Verse 27, after they brought them in, they had, uh, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin And the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey rather than people. We must obey God rather than people. What a response for Peter to make. Peter, he says, I don't care what you want. You are a mere mortal man, 
I care more about what God wants. We must obey God rather than people. Church, will this be our response when the government comes and says we can no longer congregate? Will that be our response when they come to shut us down? When the government says, hey, preaching that, you need to stop meeting together, will our response be, we are to obey God and not people? You don't think this can happen? Well, just a few days ago, I read about the mayor of New York City rounding up Jewish people for having a funeral and ordered the police to arrest them if they were congregating. This is real life. 2020. Just six years ago, the mayor of Houston subpoenaed the sermons of local pastors to try to censor what they were preaching. Let that sink in for a second. Let that sink in for a second. That the moves are in place right now as we're speaking to shut the church down, to shut the church up, no matter the cost. And like I said a couple of weeks ago, if we do the job that God has called us to do successfully, it will happen. It's not a question if, if it will happen, but it most certainly will happen. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm all about keeping people safe in this time. I get it. However, we need to understand that the day is coming when those who oppose the message will use any excuse necessary to hold back the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will use any means necessary to hold back the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we're thrown in jail, when we're pressured to be silent, is God going to give us a safe place to hide together, or will he send us back out into the center of the city to proclaim the one and only message of salvation of Jesus Christ? What do we expect God to do? If policemen were to show up right now and haul us off and say, listen, we're going to drop charges, but you don't be doing that anymore. What does God expect us to do? Amen, brother. God has said, you get right back on out there. You proclaim the message of Jesus Christ as loud as you can. You let everybody know that there is salvation in no other name but Jesus. Not Hinduism, not Islam, not Buddhism, not Mormonism. But you let them know that only Jesus saves, and that is the message that needs to go across out through our mouths. Because Jesus said, if you don't do it, the rocks will cry it out. The message of the gospel needs to get out no matter what. And I, and I don't want to use our time here in this uh, quarantine. I don't want to use the whole idea of coronavirus and everything going on, even though we see some of that. Trust me, this isn't one of those messages, but we know it's coming. And, and, and if you give them an inch, they will take a mile. And my point of the matter is, we don't need senators and congressmen and presidents to make a plea for America to leave us alone. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to, to come inside of us so that we can take the message of the gospel wherever it needs to go. 
whether it be illegal or not, whether our country decides that they want to follow us or not, whether it's popular or not, whether it's politically, politically correct or not, that is our job to do. And Peter and all of the apostles, when they're rounded up and, they, and legally they're said, do not, do not proclaim this name any longer. Shut up. Don't say that. They say, we must obey God rather than people. In other words, we could care less what you have to say about our message, but we're going to get it out because that's what we've been called to do. We must obey God and not people. God is so willing and ready to use those who will spread his message at any cost. Will that be us? Will that be us? Or will we be like those who Paul wrote about as he's writing his farewell and he tells Timothy, pray for me because those who were once with me have abandoned me. They've fallen in love with this world and they've left the faith because the trouble got deep, because the fire got hot, they left. The reality is, yes, the majority of people listening to this message will cower in the face of what's coming. And I hate to say that. I hate to say that. But the reality is, is that God has commanded us to give this message no matter what, and we must do what he has called us to do. Trust me, church, the government, other people are going to disguise it to make it sound like it's not that bad. That's my fear. Jesus warned false prophets will come and they will appear as angels of light, but they will be wolves in sheep's clothing. If you hear someone saying something that seems to contradict the message that God has called us to get out, you go running. If you, any one of us up here say anything close to that, you leave this church immediately. Because the message is, no matter what, no matter who, God's gospel needs to get out. And we're going to do it. And we're going to do it. And don't allow anybody to to deceive you into thinking that all you're doing is obeying laws. I'm all for obeying laws. Romans says we must until, until it conflicts with what God has called me to do. If my government laws ever tell me that I need to be silenced for preaching the word of God, then we're going to have a problem. Because this right here, as Jesus said in Matthew, I have given you all authority. I serve the God who made the mountains. I serve the God who hung the solar system. And his word to me matters more than anyone else's on what I should say or not. I'm going to close with James chapter 12, uh, chapter 1, sorry. There's only five chapters in James. I'm a great pastor. <laughs> James chapter 1, uh, James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect 
and complete, lacking nothing. Church, the suffering will come and let God work His discipline in your life so that you lack nothing when you stand before Him one day. And when the time comes, and I believe we're very close, when the time comes, we need to endure. And when the time comes, we will have the faith to say, we must obey God and not man. We've been instructed to do what God has said, not what people say. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, God, and we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that you've given us this task of yours to go out and to preach this gospel. You've trusted us with the message of your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, God. And I pray over our church this morning. I pray over every single member, God, that we would be compelled to get this message out to everyone we know, God. That you would start a revival within Fellowship Baptist Church to go out to our own communities and to do what you have commanded us to do, God, because of our love for you, because of, because of us wanting you to be glorified and not ourselves, Father. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the blood that was spilt for our penalty, God. And I pray that with all seriousness and severity, we would be thankful and grateful to do what you have commanded us to do, God. Be with us throughout the rest of the day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening today. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.